joy. Uh, last couple of days be here in Australia. I, I get a lot of blessings in the trips. I get to see a lot of the world. I got to go about a year and a half ago to the Holy Land, uh, which is unbelievable. It makes their whole faith just come in 3D. And I brought a couple pictures uh, to just show you guys. Um, this first one I want to show you, uh, this over on the hill over here is Nazareth. Uh, the Virgin Mary would have actually walked down through this valley under the freeway overpass, which wasn't there at the time. Uh, it was just under construction. And then across that valley over to see her cousin Elizabeth. So that's where that whole thing took place. Uh, on the next slide, if you look at this, this is the Mount of Beatitudes. Uh, in the background, the Sea of Galilee. This is where the, uh, uh, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount would have taken place, a little bit down from there. Next one's pretty cool. Um, this is the Valley of the Shadow of Death. When you read about that in the book of Psalms, this is it. Uh, when you hear about the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, uh, where the Good Samaritan story happy, happened, the, the mugging would have happened probably along a trail like that. That's what Jesus was describing. And so that's the Valley of Shadow Death. We even got a little video footage of the Sea of Galilee, which is right hey there. Here. We're live here at the Sea of Galilee trying to teach my pilgrims how to walk on water. It's not going so well. Or, or, yeah, I think we just lost another one. Time to turn around, take two. So yeah, I lost one, but Jesus did too, and so that's totally fine. Um, we had backups. Uh, but now, the next picture, this is what I want to sit on for a little bit, on this next one. Uh, this is Caesarea Philippi. And so when Jesus says to Peter, you know, you're Peter, you're on this rock, you'll build my church, this is where the whole thing happened. Now, I had always heard in like religion class that, oh, when Jesus did this, he was standing in front of a big rock. And I'm like, oh, that's nice, a little visual aid. I didn't know the half of it. Because Jesus did a lot of his preaching in Capernaum. Uh, there are plenty of really big rocks in Capernaum, so why did he take them here? This is a 37-mile hike from Capernaum to get to Caesar Caesarea Philippi. So why would he walk this far to get to this place to stand in front of this rock to tell Peter this message, making him the first pope? Well, this isn't just a big rock. This was actually a satanic temple at the time. This was the temple of the Greek god Pan. This was the Greek god who had the body of a man, the legs and the horns of a goat, the pagan god of the wilderness. And this place, it was teeming at the time of Christ with pagan rituals going on. You see these little niches carved into the wall over here. This would be a niche for the Greek god Pan. They'd be offering animal sacrifices. Out of this hole to the left was a natural spring of water that came out. If any of the blood of the goat's sacrifice poured into the water, it was deemed an unworthy sacrifice, and they would sacrifice a human being instead. So they had fertility rituals going on, human sacrifice. At the top of this mountain uh, was actually a temple to the god Pan as well. And so Jesus, and this right here, this, this was believed to be, this cave was believed to be the portal to the netherworld, the gate of hell. And so Jesus marches his apostles 37 miles to position himself in front of this and then say to Peter, you, Peter, are rock. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it's fascinating to me as a little history background to this. There was a ancient Greek historian who said that during the reign of Caesar Augustus Tiberius, there were Greek sailors out at sea who saw a vision. And they, this vision announced to them, the great god Pan is dead. Now, this didn't happen. Greek gods did not die. They were immortal. But they saw this vision that announced the Greek god Pan is dead. So they came to shore and they announced this. And everybody's mourning and lamenting over this fact. Now, what's interesting, if you look historically, when did this take place? That they had this vision that Pan was dead. 
during the reign of Caesar Augustus Tiberius. When was his reign? His reign was from A.D. 14 to A.D. 37, meaning the same time Christ would have shown up here, a vision apparently appeared in the Mediterranean that Pan was dead, that Christ was taking... And people say, well, maybe it's because there are Christian missionaries who are saying that. No, Paul didn't set foot in Greece until A.D. 49. And so something had happened, something had shifted, Christ was taking back, reclaiming his kingdom. And so you start to see the historical significance of this. And what I would propose to you, this passage, you have read backwards your entire life. Jesus says, you're Peter, on this rock I'll build my church, gates of hell won't prevail against it. You've always read it backwards. You always thought it said that hell will not prevail against the gates of the church. It doesn't say that. It says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Well, what's the difference? I want you to think about this. Gates are defensive structures. Nobody gets attacked by a gate. I mean, how many of you have ever been attacked by a gate? Do we have? Okay, we actually have a couple here. Well, I wasn't planning on that, but I'll, I'll stick with the story anyway. But um, <laughs> hell has the gates. Hell is on the defensive and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church imposing upon it. And so the reason I dwell on this is because I get really tired of this narrative. Oh, the church is under attack. The church is under attack. The oh, look, okay, okay, great. I get it. Church is under attack. I was speaking at a church up in Alaska on the topic of gender theology of the body. The night before my talk, somebody came and vandalized the church. They threw nails all over the parking lot. They sprayed paint painted images in red of sexual body parts all over the church. But, you know, the priest took it in stride. He said, you know what? In preparation for Jason's talk on the uh, theology of the body, I commissioned some frescoes to be painted for the church, and they didn't quite turn out as we had planned, but we're going to just cover it all up. And so kind of took it in stride because he realized, no, 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 the church is not the one on the defensive. The church is on the march. And this is the posture Christ takes. I mean, look at the gospel of Mark. This is out of the chapter 3. He's talking about the devil as a strong man. And he said, but no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then indeed he may plunder his house. And so the strong man is Satan. Christ has come. He's binding him up and reclaiming what belongs to him. This posture of being on the offensive, this fearlessness, is a hallmark of the saints. I mean, look at a couple of saints. I'm going to just throw up some pictures right here. We've got a, list, a couple pictures. So right here, we have St. Jose Sanchez del Rio, 15-year-old boy that wouldn't give up his faith. And they marched him through the dusty streets of Mexico to his place of death. And to torture him, they cut... His hole, they cut like just lacerations in the bottom of his feet. Some translations say they actually shaved off the soles of his feet, making him march through the dusty streets of Mexico. And they would stab him with a bayonet. And when they'd stab him, he'd say, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. They'd stab him again. He'd say, Viva, Christ, or, Viva Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, long live Our Lady of Guadalupe. They brought him to the place of his death, and he, they, they shot him. And he, and he fell to the ground, traced in his own blood the sign of the cross, kissed it, and he died, 14 years old, fearless. And then you look here, St. Gemma Gagani. Wow. St. Gemma, this woman, not only was she a mystic and a stigmatist, this woman once was sitting with her spiritual director, and Satan appeared in the room in this diabolical form of a beast. And he came, like, crawling in through the window, and the spiritual director freaked out. Ah, and Gemma didn't even lose her peace. She's like, oh, don't worry. That's just stupid. Like, 
that was her nickname for the Prince of Darkness. Like, oh, just stupid, don't worry about that. Like, just fearlessness. And then you have Blessed Miguel Pro. Should he become canonized, this will be the first photo we have in the church of one of our saints being martyred. And as they shot him, again, he said, Viva Cristo Rey, shot, gave up his life. And all this stuff sounds great, like dying for your faith. But I think, to be honest, I think a lot of us would be like, yeah, I could die for my faith, but that's not really the question. I don't think we're really afraid of dying for the faith. I think we're actually kind of afraid of living for the faith. I think that takes a lot more courage than just a, a moment of martyrdom. And so if we're going to be fearless with the faith, I think we have to be very honest with ourselves. Okay, what am I afraid of? I'm not afraid of some bloody martyrdom. No, no, what, what am I afraid of? I think a lot of our fears, if we're honest, revolve around relationships. That's where our fears a lot of time are. Fears with like, okay, if I take this religion stuff seriously and I come home and be a different person, I could, I could be ridiculed, I could lose friends. And there's this temptation to kind of sit on the fence, to kind of compartmentalize religion. And that's kind of how I grew up, right? When I was in high school, we had to get confirmed. And to get confirmed, you had to do a service project. Now, psh, they said, well, you can either stay here and work with the poor or go to Mexico and work with the poor down there. Now, psh, I couldn't care one way or the other, but there happened to be a young lady in our confirmation class that I was rather interested in. And so they said, if you raise your hand to go to Mexico, you put your name on the list. And so I kind of waited and her hand up and mine did too. The Holy Spirit is calling me to Mexico. So. I went down to Mexico, I got to know her pretty good, I took her to a couple dances, and she married a friend of mine, and that's okay, so, um, but, you know, so, you know, I'd go to church, but I wouldn't really, like, get into church, and I figured, look, I'm a good person, I am, I'm a good person, I'm somewhere between Mother Teresa and, like, Osama Bin Laden, you know, kind of like, like, you know, right in that little narrow spot there, but wasn't really living it to the full, like, but then I'd start reading about these saints, man, they're so attractive, like, uh, uh, Blessed Per Giorgio Frassati, man, this guy was a tournament skier, a mountain climber, a handsome guy, and this guy would go to the pool hall, and he would just play people in pool, and he'd say, but we got to put something on the table here if we're going to play and here's the deal if you beat me I'm going to give you money if I beat you you have to come with me to Eucharistic adoration and so he would slaughter them at pool and then bring a whole crowd of young adults with him to Eucharistic adoration this boldness because he wasn't afraid oh are they going to reject me for my faith no 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 because if they reject you our friends do because of our faith they're not true friends and if not, I'm not willing to bring them the gospel, then I'm not being a true friend to them. And so we have to look, how fearful I am, am I? Because we're kind of on a dock, in a sense. One foot on the dock, which is our security of our worldly life, and then the boat is what Christ is calling us into. And then they start to drift a little bit. And it's like, I know I should be in the boat, but I want to stay on the dock. And you kind of feel like this fear. But even if you're in this fog of like, well, I don't know what God's calling me to do, what I would say is this. The scriptures tell us that his word is a light into our feet and a lamp into our path. Dude, a lamp doesn't give you squat when it comes to light. I mean, that gives you like two feet of light. But he deliberately uses that word. It's not like a spotlight he gives us. Basically, I'm just going to show you two feet ahead of you. But you can complete a journey of a thousand miles spending the entire thing in dense fog. If you can simply two see two feet in front of you, you can at least see the path. Well, I can tell it goes that way. I don't know what's 100 yards ahead, but if I stay on it in faith, I can complete this entire journey. And so what's needed, I think, is courage. And they say it's not the absence of fear. It's the judgment something more important than your fear. So what are you afraid of? Like men versus women. What are you men afraid of when it comes to relationships? Men will say, what am I afraid of? I ain't afraid of nothing. I ain't got no fear. I'm a man. Um, the guys are afraid. Like, what are we afraid of? Well, I think we're afraid of initiating love because we might get rejected. 
We're afraid of committing uh, because someone better might come along. We're afraid of giving ourselves because then we're afraid we're kind of losing ourselves. We've been marinated in this false notion of freedom. You don't want a girlfriend, you're tied down. You don't want a wife, it's a ball and chain. You don't want kids, it's like game over. It's this false notion of freedom that we'll lose ourselves if we give ourselves. But I'll tell you, man, the best homily I ever heard in my life was I was in college and this priest gets up in front of like more than a thousand college students. And he said, men, women, he said, ladies, would you please raise your hand right now if a man on our campus asked you out on a date this week? Barely any of the girls put their hands up. And that priest spent the rest of the homily drilling into the guys for failing to initiate relationships. And you should have seen the girls. They were like, hallelujah, Father. Like, Preach on. Can I have a witness? And like, man, bad dude. They were in love with Father Ron after that homily. But I think we kind of appreciated him more because he kind of called us out on it. He kind of smoked us out of our little holes. And I think a reason why a lot of guys don't initiate relationships is because we tend to be simple creatures and we do well with concrete guidelines. We don't do well with abstract concepts in case you women haven't noticed that. Like my wife will speak to me in an abstract way. I have no clue what she's talking about. Like she'll say things like, Honey, I could use a little more help around the house. I'm like, mmm, house big. Mm, yeah. <laughs> She's like, take out the trash. I'm like, okay, that's a conversation. I can work with that. Guys need specifics. But the challenge is when it comes to relationships, that we don't get them. We get generalities. Be a gentleman. Okay. Like, dude, seriously, go ask a high school boy what it means to be a gentleman. He'll be like, well, if there's a girl and a door, you open the door for the girl. Good, 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 good. What else? He'll be like, well, if there's another door, then that door also you open for the girl. <laughs> let's stretch it a little bit. So I thought tonight, let's, let's dive into a little bit of the specifics. because So that way we're not afraid of what we're supposed to do when it comes to these relationships. Last night I talked a little bit about the Dating Blueprint book. You know, and the genesis behind that was all these women who gave me feedback on that they wish guys knew about dating. And some of the specifics that they said, you know, I mentioned last night. Like, use the word date if you ask her on a date. Another thing is like, don't be a flirty boy. Don't even flirt at all. Because like, what's the definition of flirt? It's to pay romantic attention to another without serious intentions. So I don't have a problem with the first part, I got a problem with the second, the lack of intentionality. So instead of being a flirty boy, here's the game plan. Okay, discern, is this the right girl? Is this the right time? If so, pursue her with sincerity and commit to her with clarity. Now, it's obviously, this is not a robotic formula. You don't go up to a girl, I have discerned, I should pursue you. It's like, <laughs> it's not Catholic stalker. Okay, no, a little bit awkward, but, but if you discern, go. Ask her out, take a risk. Because when you ask a girl out face to face, uh, there's a couple of real benefits in that. One, she ain't dumb. She knows that you're risking rejection. But the very fact that you're willing to risk rejection makes you look more attractive because you're willing to take some risk, have a little confidence. It also makes her feel more attractive because she knows that you would rather risk the shot of being rejected just to have a chance to have one date with her. So it makes you both feel and look more attractive to each other than just kind of swiping left and right on an app. Because the easier it is to ask a lady out, the easier it is for the lady to say no. And so ask out face to face. If she says yes, plan the date. Don't sit around, what do you want to do? I don't know, what do you want to do? I don't know, we can play Minecraft? I don't know, like what do you want to do? Like, 
plan the date, like put thought into it. And not like plan the date, like you ask, tell a guy to plan a date, he's like, okay, dinner and a movie. Like, no, women said in that book, the number one place they don't want to go on a first date, movie theaters. And the guy's like, why not? Dinner and a movie. I mean, think you take her to the movies, you bring her home. I really enjoyed getting to know you better tonight. <laughs> and she's like, dude, we just watched Kong beat up Godzilla for three hours. And you think you know me better because of that? No. Save the movie to like a fifth or sixth date. Let's say you take her to a restaurant, you pick her seat for her. Not because I'm telling you where to sit, but if it's a beautiful view, give her the view. There's no view, then the man should take the seat facing her and the wall so she knows during dinner your attention is on her. Not on the rugby game, not on the cute little hostess walking by, and it makes her feel honored. You tell us the young guys, and I'm like, oh, that's good, that's good. <laughs> We just want the specifics. And like, and so let's say you go on a date, you go on five dates or two years of dates, and then it becomes clear that like, this isn't really going where I think it should be and I think we should break things up. Here's the big one, don't ghost. Ghosting in this modern phenomenon where you initially pay romantic attention for a, a week or a month or a year, and then you decide, okay, this isn't for me, and then you just kind of disappear. You just kind of like fall off the face of the earth. And the girl's left thinking, okay, wait a minute, wh wh where did he go? Did I do something wrong? Did I say something wrong? Did I wear the wrong thing? Does he like another girl? Like, is, did he get abducted by aliens? Like, was he deported? He did have a cute accent. Like, I don't, where did the guy go from? And so, and so, but so what, what ghosting is, is basically saying, well, I don't want to have a hard conversation. But if we can have intentionality and clarity and confidence entering into a relationship, I think we owe it to her to have as much clarity and closure when it comes to the end of the relationship. She's a big girl, and, and, and it's, she would much prefer to have a little clarity with closure than have ambiguity for months of wondering what went wrong. And so we've got to enter with clarity, and I think exit with clarity as well. And so I think with women, though, if, if the man's fear is kind of initiating and giving and all that, I think the woman's fear is kind of the opposite of that, that you're not really worth the effort because you're just too much or you're just not enough. And out of a fear of aloneness, she begins to settle. Well, I, I can't be naive. I'm not gonna find some knight in shining armor nowadays. I gotta kind of loosen up a little bit, just kind of relax. And you know, maybe I just need to get a little more aggressive and have a drink and just go to the clubs. And, and what ends up happening is, my, what I'm saying is like, your job, if the guy is to initiate love, your job is not just to be passive. I think some women fall into that, a passivity of, oh, he'll come, he'll come to me one day. He'll come to me one day. It's like, it's like Ingrid, you're 97 years old. Like, he'll come to me. Yeah, if he works at the post office, maybe. But like, you gotta get out there. And so it's not about passivity, but active receptivity. Because I think what happens if we start trying to grasp, take things into our own hands, what often ends up happening is we kind of maybe lower the morals a little bit, and then we end up just disappointed because that doesn't end up helping us to find love, but just to find disappointment. And then you make justifications. Look, I know I did that with a guy, but it's not like we went all the way. Or yeah, we did that, but at least it's not, I didn't meet him in a bar yesterday. I mean, we were dating for three months. We start making these little compromises and excuses, but you'll notice if you're ever doing something virtuous, you never make a justification for it. It's not like you're feeding the poor and be like, well, at least I'm not robbing in a bank today, it's not that bad. Like, you don't make excuses because your conscience is at rest. And so if we're ever making those excuses, something is off. But what ends up happening is we just end up getting disappointed, and then sometimes it gets to a point of just resignation. I remember one college girl emailing me, and she said, after these hookups, she said, I feel like the gross stuff in the road after the snow is melted and cars have been driving on it for a while. 
It's how she kind of described the state of her heart after these hookups. And a lot of times I find that these people that have maybe feel like they've given away too much sometimes don't have any boundaries when it comes to the body, but there is a fortress around their heart. It's almost like they're hiding behind their own nakedness, offering the men what the men are least likely to reject out of fear that she wouldn't ever be wanted for more than just the body. And so she ends up having this, this no boundaries around the body, but there's like this castle around her heart but she won't give it away because it could get hurt. But the castle just becomes like this cage. This cage becomes a coffin. She becomes untouchable emotionally out of the fear. And what's happening is we're living out of this fear sometimes. So how do you back out of this whole thing? How do you like regain the confidence and heal? What I would propose is this. We have to ask God for what we lack. If you don't have hope, ask him for hope. If you don't have courage, ask him for courage. It's so important you're specific. In fact, when I was in New Zealand a while back, I met these nuns. I knew about these nuns. They did this like Christmas pageant thing. And one of the nuns was very extravagant. She wanted everything real. Real baby Jesus, real donkey, real hay, real chicken, like everything real. And they said, Mother, I mean, this sounds great, sister, but where are we going to find a donkey? Like, we live in New Zealand. Like, there's no native land mammals here bigger than a bat. Like, where are we going to find a donkey? And she said, we will do a novena to St. Joseph because Joseph found a donkey for the Holy Family, so he will find a donkey for us. Well, that's logical enough. So they did a nine-day novena to St. Joseph. And they said, well, get a piece of paper, draw a picture of a donkey, and put that under your pillow at night. So when you wake up in the morning, you'll feel the paper, you'll remember to pray for the donkey, you'll wake up, you'll pray for the donkey. So they did this for like nine days, and then some weird guy just shows up at the convent with a donkey. And I'm like, oh, praise God, it's a donkey. And they look at the donkey, the donkey had no tail, just flat, like, like, like it had never been there. And they said, okay, well, still, we should be grateful, we'll just point him towards the back of the manger, and no one will notice a little deformity. And they went back to the rooms. Uh, one of the sisters came out with a drawing. She's like, hmm. And she called the other sisters. Could y'all go get your drawings? All the sisters brought their drawings together. I'm not making this up. Every single nun forgot to draw the tail upon her donkey. <laughs> the moral of the story being when you ask God for something, it helps to be specific, okay? And so, so what is it you need? Ask him for it. Like, do you lack trust in God? Trust him. Because to move forward and find real love, you have to trust him with your body of saying these desires I have, the cravings I have for intimacy, I'm going to trust you with my body. I'm not going to grasp. And this will place demands on the relationship. It will require some element of purity. But it's a real test of love. I remember speaking to high school once and a girl came up dating this controlling, possessive, abusive older guy, treats her like garbage. I said, sweetheart, you deserve a lot better than him. Just break up with him. She said, I can't just break up with him. I've given him everything, my virginity, my reputation, my friends. I can't let go of it all. And I said, look, I know it's tough. Just tell him no more sex. Watch what happens. She said, okay, I can do that. And she took her necklace off and gave it to me. She said, he makes me wear this. He's so possessive. I said, okay, I'll throw it away for you. And she left. Five minutes later, she comes back, happy as can be. She's like, I dumped him. I'm like, well, I was quick. She said, yep, I told him no more sex. He slammed his locker shut. He threw a book at me. He said, where's your necklace? She said, I gave it to the chastity guy. <laughs> and you see what happens. I mean, give it to that girl. I mean, she tested his love. Do you love me? Do you want me? Or do you only want the pleasure that you're getting from me? Because the way I look at it, women, look, what you win a man with is what you keep him with, okay? If you win him with pleasure, you have to keep him with pleasure. But that's a repeatable asset. He can get it anywhere. He can get it off the internet. He can get it from another girl. It's a repeatable thing. If you win him with your body, 
then you have to keep them with your body. But here's the problem. Every woman has a body. I can't even remember the last woman I met who did not have a body, okay? It's a repeatable thing. But if you win him with who you are as a human person, this relationship is far more likely to go the distance. And will this test your love? Absolutely. But think of what wind does to fire. If it's a weak little flame and you blow on it, it's like a birthday candle. Things gone like that. But if you've got a bit of a wildfire going on and you blow on that, it just makes it roar all the more. And so purity is a test of love. If it's counterfeit, the purity will extinguish the love. If the love is authentic, the purity will intensify it because sacrifice is the food of love. And so don't be afraid to bring purity into the relationship, to trust God with your body. And I know stepping into the faith in a serious way, it can be nerve-wracking. A lot, I remember growing up and I was like, I don't know if I'm into this whole church thing because like, I don't know, there's like some people in our church that are all holy and they're just weird, like, right? I mean, they're just weird. And my friend said, look, he said, you're going to meet holy people that are weird, but he said they were weird before they were holy. And I'm like, okay, well, that, that makes me feel a little bit better. Um, but like, we had discussed last night how like sainthood was the full bloom of the human personality and how true this is. I mean, look at how intensely unique the saints are. You have people like Mother Teresa. Oh my goodness, Mother Teresa. People think she's like this little soft-spoken Albanian nun. Dude, she was a heavy hitter. Friend of mine knew her well and said, I could only see Mother Teresa once a year because he said it would take me that long to recover after having spoken with her. Like, she'd let you have it. And one of the times a friend of mine, she let him have it. He was a Swiss guard for Pope John Paul II, all right? He's standing at the bronze doors and, um, and what, no, this, yeah, no, he was, what he, the first time he met her, he was misbehaving as a Swiss guard. Now, if you get in trouble as a Swiss guard, you drink too much, miss your curfew, whatever, they make you do service hours. And so they told him, okay, because of what you did, you got to go do service hours at um, a missionaries of charity. Just go to the nuns, they'll tell you what to do. So he shows up at the missionaries of charity. He's not having it. He does not want to be there. And they say, yeah, just go in the kitchen and go clean dishes. And he's like, all right, error. And he goes back there and he starts scrubbing some pots and pans. And he, as the day goes on, He's just not having it. I mean, it's a hot Italian summer, and he's just ticked that he's there. And he's scrubbing some pot, and then he got this big scummy pot, and he can't get the scum out of it. And he and he misses it like with the water, splashes all over the place. Gets on his Italian jeans and his shoes, and he just drops like whatever bomb of a curse word, and he just curses. And then. A little nun next to him hands him a rag to dry himself off with it. He grabs the rag and wipes his face, and then he looks over. It's Mother Teresa herself. And she looks up at him and she says, wow, you sure are acting like a sissy. <laughs> and he's like, like, he's like six foot four. She's like four foot six. And then she just walks off. And he's like, I just got called out by Mother Teresa. She goes to the other nuns. She pulls out a miraculous medal, gives it to a sister, and says, please bring that to the man who's acting like a little girl in the kitchen. So they bring the guy this medal, miraculous medal from, from Mother Teresa, and then he went home that day, and he's like, wow, like I have a miraculous medal from Mother Teresa herself. And months went by, and he lost the miraculous medal. He felt terrible about it. And then one day, he's standing at the bronze doors, or wherever in the Vatican, and his time, he's got his whole regalia on, you know, whole Swiss guard pajama outfit they wear, and he's got his halberd spear. And who starts walking in for her appointment with John Paul II, but Mother Teresa? And he's like, oh, I wonder if she's gonna recognize me. And she walks up to him, and then she stops, and she looks at him, and she says, Hmm. She reaches into her sari, her habit, pulls out a miraculous medal, gives it to him, and says, this time, don't lose it, sissy, and walks on by. And he was like, 
like how on earth could she have known that it was me, that I had lost the medal, but she was so in tune with the Holy Spirit, wherever he blew, she would go. And it doesn't matter how frightening that place was, she would go. I remember when the war was going on in West Beirut in the 1980s, she shows up in West Beirut and she says, I want to go into West Beirut. Uh, because there's a, a, a handicap, there's a, like a hospital, a little orphanage of handicapped Muslim children, and there's 37 of them behind the war zone. So I want to go bring the kids out. And they said, Mother, like, you can't go into West Beirut. The war is going on. Like, that's literally like showing up at the Gaza Strip right now and be like, I want to go into northern Gaza. Like, you just couldn't do it. And they said, Mother, I'm sorry, but you physically can't go in there. They said they killed a priest last week in there because he was a priest. They could kill you, Mother. She said, all for Jesus. <laughs> like, how do you argue with this woman? And they said, look. I said, Mother, you physically can't get into West Beirut unless there is a ceasefire. You physically can't get across the bridge. She said, oh, okay, well, tomorrow is the day before Our Lady's feast day in the church, so we'll have a ceasefire in honor of the Blessed Virgin Mary. <laughs> and they're like, Mother, I'm glad that you're a woman of faith and that, that you're on our side, but don't you think you're testing God by expecting him to resolve this international conflict according to the church's liturgical calendar? And she said, no, I've spoken to Our Lady. Tomorrow the feast day will be in her honor. And the ambassador said, Mother, if we have a ceasefire tomorrow, I will personally arrange for vans to pick you up in the morning. She said, thank you. <laughs> Priest friend of mine lived in, in Lebanon, and he, and he said, yeah, she came back to the convent that night and opened up the Blessed Sacrament Tabernacle for, for time of Eucharistic adoration and knelt in adoration from 10 p.m. to 4 a.m., six hours of Eucharistic adoration for peace. Then she got up, had a little rest, got up at like 6 a.m., had a little coffee. They turned on the TV, and you see this live broadcast with a reporter on enemy lines saying, we seem to have had a ceasefire of sorts. Mother gets on the phone, I'd like the vans by 7 o'clock, please. And so this boldness they had, but she was so simple in her holiness. They said, Mother, tell us something that will change our lives. She's like, smile at each other. Uh, they said, well, Mother, how do you become a saint? She said, say yes to Jesus. Like, that's it. Like, let's not complicate these things. And so the fears that we have so often are unnecessary. Your fears of your vocations, like, well, I'm afraid God's calling me to the religious life. Dude, God is not asking, like, for prisoners. Like, he's like, like, like you have to have a religious order, the inmates of the interior life, you know, all these people that are enslaved. Like, he's not looking for hostages. Like, if he gives you the calling, he'll give you the desire. Your desire for the vocation is his gift to you. And so don't grow anxious over all of these things. And so trust in him. He's given you the means to, to, to grow in sanctity. The Mother Teresa, the John Paul II, they didn't have any different sacraments than we have. They just took advantage of it. So take advantage of it. For one, sacrament of reconciliation. Go at least once a month to confession. And look, I get it. It's awkward sometimes. It's difficult. I remember one of the best confessions I ever went to. The priest was visiting. I was in college. I had done some dumb things. And the, there was a priest visiting from France. I'm like, sweet, he's in France. I'll never see him again. Bad attitude, but I went. I get there. Hey, you know, Father, forgive me for I did all the stuff. And he says, okay. He says, for your penance, he says, I want you to tell Jesus that he has a problem. And I'm like, what? He says, for your penance, I want you to tell Jesus he has a problem. I go, okay, wait, you want me to tell Jesus that he has a problem? And he said, oui, oui, yes. Uh -huh. And I'm like, 
I don't understand. He said, do you belong to Jesus? I said, yes, I belong to Jesus. And he says, well, then Jesus has you. You are a big mess. You are a problem. If Jesus has you, Jesus has a problem. And I'm like, oh, I like it. But what, what a beautiful way to look at your sins. Like, don't take yourself so seriously. St. Francis de Sales said, have patience with the whole world, but first of all, with yourself. And so go to confession, even if it's awkward. I remember when I was in college once, I came back, we were living off campus, and I come in, my roommate's watching TV. I'm like, hey, Dario, you want to come with me to the gym? He's like, no, I'm just watching TV. I'm like, all right. And I went upstairs, studied for a little bit, came downstairs. I'm like, going to the gym, you sure you don't want to come? He's like, no, I'm watching TV. I'm like, all right. Go to the gym for like an hour and a half. I come back, he's still watching TV. He was Italian, he was watching World Cup. That's like a religious experience for them, I guess. And, but I, I called him out. I'm like, hey, Dario, man, you're kind of being idle. I got to get up. And he didn't understand English real well, so he's like, oh, idol, like TV is my idol. And I'm like, no, 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 not I-D-O-L, I-D-O-L-I-D-L-E. You know, kind of sitting around a lot. But he kind of felt convicted of the of guiltiness of the sin of idolatry, so he went to confession to a priest to confess the sin of idolatry. Unfortunately, the priest he chose was a very elderly priest who was almost deaf. And now, the, the word idolatry is probably not a sin they hear a lot in the confessional. However, it does sound an awful lot like another sin, namely adultery, which is <laughs> precisely what the priest thought he said. So Daria rolls in there, hey, Father, forgive me, I'm guilty of adultery. Oh, uh, that's very serious. No, it's not, Father. Yes, it is serious. It's just something to do. Oh no, that's not just something to do. Don't you think you're overreacting? Sometimes friends come over too. Ah! Like, like people outside the confession are like, I'm gonna go to this priest instead. Like, God, this gigantic penance. They never resolve the miscommunication, but like, hey, hey, look, I don't care. It's worth it, okay? Just go. People, oh, it's so humiliating. No, it's not. Sin's humiliating. Confession's humbling. Go, go to confession. At least once a month, go to confession. Second thing, you never leave the Mass, the bread of angels. I looked at St. John Paul II as kind of my role model in terms of spirituality. And man, when he came to visit the United States, he came to a place called Baltimore, and before his trip, the Vatican sends out a group of people to get everything ready for his apostolic visits. Because there's all kinds of logistical things that got to get ironed out. The priest in charge of this is a Jesuit named Father Roberto Tucci. So he shows a couple, a couple weeks early to Baltimore. He's walking through the bishop's residence where the pope is going to have a, a little bit of rest time. And he shows up there, and he's just making sure all the arrangements are ready, walking down a hallway. It's a corridor of doors, and they all look the same, and he's walking by, but then one of them opens to a chapel with the Blessed Sacrament. Father Tucci says to the priest there, Father Michael White, when the Holy Father comes, please make sure this door is closed. We'd rather the Holy Father not know the Blessed Sacrament is in the residence. And Father Michael White is like, okay, why are you hiding Jesus from the Pope? And he said, look, we are in charge of his apostolic visit schedule, and every minute for the Holy Father is organized. He's got nine minutes with the vice president, eight minutes with the seminarians, three minutes with the orphans, like everything is organized. He said, the problem we're having with John Paul is that whenever he finds the Blessed Sacrament, he insists on making a visit. He gets lost in contemplative prayer for 45 minutes, and it ruins the entire schedule. He said, we're at the point with him that we reroute his Pope-mobile away from Catholic churches. Because if he drives by one, he's like knocking on the glass, and he wants to go in and see Jesus. So we just drive him down the block, no harm, no foul. So he said, look, 
when the Holy Father comes, just make sure the door is closed and we'll stay on track. So a couple weeks later, the Holy Father shows up and he's got his old entourage in tow. He's got Monsignor Jeevish, his secretary, Father Tucci, Father Michael White, and the Holy Father is walking down the hallway. And he walks down the hall and he passes the door and then he stops and he turns around he looks at the door, he looks at Father Tucci, Tucci, shook his head, wagged his finger, opened the door, and went right into Jesus. Now, now, Father Michael White said, I was astonished. He said, there's no way he could have known. All of the doors looked the exact same, and he said, but if you think that that was a coincidence, he said he did the same thing the next day in the seminary, like he had always been there. He knew where our Lord was. And to me, it's kind of like that scene in Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ, where Jesus is down in the dungeon, I think at the house of Caiaphas. Our Lady is up above, and, and, and they can't see each other. There's, you know, the wall separating them, but she, they can sense each other's presence there. And I think it was that Marian heart of John Paul II that gave him this intense Eucharistic love. And listen to what John Paul said of Our Lady. He said, the Virgin of Nazareth, the compassionate and patient mother, will mold within you a contemplative heart and teach you to fix your gaze on Jesus so that in this world that passes away, you shall be prophets of a world that does not die. And I remember last time I came here to Sydney, this word prophet, I got to hear Archbishop Anthony Fisher, who's going to be coming up here soon. And I remember him talking about prophets. I remember distinctly what he said. He said they were decidedly odd people. And so we don't want to relate to them. I mean, you look at the prophets of the Old Testament, they were just flat out weird. I mean, Isaiah, you don't even realize, he preached for three years completely naked, okay? That's like, you're not going to pass the safe environment course training at your parish for pulling that stuff off. But three years totally naked preaching, just weird, okay? Archbishop Fisher said Ezekiel was really weird. The guy once spent 430 days in a row in bed. He would go in and out of trances, and he would eat books. So he was kind of like a uni student, more or less. And so, but then... Archbishop Fisher pointed out even Jeremiah, very odd guy. Jeremiah, this is great. Just read the book of Jeremiah. There's one passage where God's like, hey, Jeremiah, um, go get a new pair of underwear. And Jeremiah, okay, all right. And he gets his brand new, nice, fresh pair of loincloths, put it on. And then God says, okay, just don't take them off. And I'm like, okay, all right, whatever. Like, and days go by, weeks, months go by. He's not allowed to change his underwear, apparently. At this point, it's getting really nasty. And again, God again says to him, Jeremiah, okay, go and take the underwear and go to the Euphrates River and bury it in a hole. And I'm sure Jeremiah's like, I'd be happy to. And so... <laughs> goes there, and he digs a hole, and like, imagine historically this happening. Like, he's sitting there behind a bush, like, and someone's like, hey, Jeremiah, what are you doing? Oh, just, God told me to bury my underwear here in a hole that I've been wearing from, okay, all right, you go, prophet. Uh, and so, buries his undies near the Euphrates River, and I'm sure he's figuring, okay, we're done with that. A long time goes by, and then God's like, hey, Jeremiah, Remember the underwear? I want you to go dig it up. And, oh, are you kidding? Okay, fine. So he goes back to the Euphrates where dig, digs up this nasty fermenting pair of rotten underwear. And at this point, it's just disgusting. And God is like, well, what is it good for? And Jeremiah's like, it, it's, it's nasty. It's not good for anything. And God said, exactly. Go tell the house of Israel that they are like that, that they were close to me, like new loincloths, that they cast themselves off, and now they're good for nothing. And I'm sure Jeremy was like, did we really need to do all of that for to get the analogy, okay? So, so look, 
I get it. They're a little unrelatable characters, okay? But the fact is God's not calling you to go preach naked and, like, eat books and, like, bury your underwear. All he wants you to do is learn your faith and live your faith. Because if you think, who are the top five, what are the top five homilies that have changed your life? You're like, oh, I can't remember any. Who are the top five people that have led you closest to God? Boom, 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 boom. It's because it's the personal witness of sanctity that draws you closest to Christ. So your primary mission field is not going and fixing our broken culture. We are our own primary mission field. Listen to what St. Augustine said. He said, men are hopeless creatures, and the less they concentrate on their own sins, the more interested they become in the sins of others. They seek to criticize, not correct. And so what is the solution to this? Well, I found it in the writings of St. John of the Cross. This hits you like a two-by-four. He said, let those then who are singularly active, who think they can win the world with their preaching and exterior works, observe here that they would profit the church and please God much more, not to mention the good example they would give, were they to spend at least half of this time with God in prayer. They would then certainly accomplish more and with less labor. And by one work, than they otherwise would by a thousand. For through their prayer, they would merit this result and themselves be spiritually strengthened. Without prayer, they would do a great deal of hammering, but accomplish little and sometimes nothing and even times cause harm. And so if we make our interior life primary, the fruit of it will look like this. I found this little excerpt in Poland, at the place where St. John Paul II was born, a little exhibit, and I found this thing I'd never heard about him. Once he was a college professor and a priest, St. Florian's Parish there in Krakow. And this was the testimony of a young adult female who encountered him one afternoon. And here's what she wrote about this. She said, I was coming back from class on a hot afternoon and I entered St. Florian's church to rest in the coolness inside. And then I heard a rustle of sheets of paper. I looked back. A priest was sitting in the confessional on the right and reading something under a small lamp. St. John Paul II. She said, I don't know how it happened that I went. I knew that I needed to go, and I knelt in the confessional. And then there was the confession. Unlike all of the ones I had gone to before, something in me broke. I understood that I cannot live like that anymore, that I had to begin to have an inner life that had to want something, desire something. They had to start talking with God and learn to listen to what he was saying as well. I can still hear the words the priest whispered at the end, come again. And so this week, come again. If something in you broke this week, if something broke through in you, come again. Get involved in the young adult communities that you're involved in. Stay close to the sacraments. It's not about just going out and evangelizing everybody. It's having an inner life of prayer. Not about going and telling everybody, but learning how to listen to the words of God. Not just doing things for God, but just learning how to be in his presence. Because what the church needs now more than anything is not more projects, not more initiatives. What the church needs is more saints. And you might hear that and be like, hey, that's great, but that's like, I don't know. Not for me. Like, I don't know if you know the stuff that I've done, but like Saint and me, that I don't really see that happening. I'll tell you, a friend of mine, always reading books about saints. And I ran into him once. I'm like, hey, you reading any good saint books lately? He's like, yeah, I'm reading about saints and addictions now. I'm like, oh, that's cool. Like, saints who help people with their addictions. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm reading about the addicted saints. And I'm like, well, I don't remember them in catechism class. Who are they? And he said, oh, check out this one guy. The guy's name was Saint Mark Zhi Cheng Zhang. He was a husband and a father and a doctor in China. 
and he got sick with a stomach ailment. And so he treated himself with the drug they'd use at that time, which is opium. And the illness went away, but the drug addiction remained in its place. And so he went to confession. Hey, Father, forgive me. I've become guilty of this drug addiction. And so Father gave him some advice, absolution, and he went on his way. And he fell back to the drug addiction. And then he came back to confession and then back to addiction. Confession, addiction, confession. Sound familiar? And so the priest eventually said to him, now, Mark, because you keep committing this sin, it tells me that you're not really sorry for it. And so I would ask you to no longer receive Holy Communion at church and no longer even come back to the Sacrament of Reconciliation until you've overcome this vice, which is obviously bad pastoral advice to give, but he didn't know how to handle things like addiction. And Mark obeyed him. And a week went by with no sacraments, and a week became a month. He'd still go to church with his family, still a good practicing doctor, but he couldn't go to the sacraments because he wasn't quite perfect. And a year went by. A year became five. Five became ten. Ten became 30 years away from the sacrament, still struggling with this addiction in secret and in shame. And it came to the point where he just prayed to God that God would make him a martyr. He couldn't see any other way to get to heaven. And God answered his prayer. In the year 1900, the Boxer Rebellion swept through China, and Christians, Catholics were rounded up to be executed. He and nine members of his family were dragged off to the place of torture and death. As they were being pulled out of the house, his grandson cried out to him, like, Grandpa, like, where are we going? And Mark said to him, we're going home. Brought them to the place of torture, and one by one, they started cutting off all the heads of the members of his family. And he begged the torturers to kill him last so that no one would have to die without him by their side, encouraging them to be faithful to the very, very end. Then one by one, they beheaded everybody in his family until only he was left. And they beheaded Mark as he was singing the litany of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And today, he is a canonized saint in the Catholic Church who died addicted to opium, which is proof the saint is not the one who does not have a mess in their life. The saint is the one who gives their mess utterly to Jesus Christ. So whether your mess is your past, whether your mess is your current state, whether your mess is the uncertain future, mental health difficulties, addictions, whatever it is, just give your mess utterly to Jesus Christ. Because St. John Paul II promised that every person who seeks the kingdom of God will find himself. God bless you guys. We love you. You're in our prayers. Thank you.